listening to the Colorado Springs Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. What's up, Colorado Springs? Chris Lopez here, and we have another Ask an Investor episode coming to you with a guest coming from out of this country to ask some questions and talk about how he's building a portfolio here in the United States. Before we get into him and introduce him, Jenny, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself, Chris? Doing really good. So, I mean, Ask Investor, a great idea you had a little bit back. So give everyone just a quick update what the format of the show is and why we're doing it. Yeah. So we just want to bring in someone for a full episode and um, just get the chance to talk to each other, kind of give, you know, personal experience and answer their questions uh, because we have found that most people tend to have the same questions as, as each other. So hopefully by answering, you know, one investor's questions, we'll be able to, to answer many investors questions. So. All right. And our guest today is Greg. Greg, how are you doing? Good. Yeah. So give everyone a little bit of background because you're in a very unique situation. Um, that, and there's other people that can relate to you though. Yeah, sure. So I'm in the military. Uh, I left Colorado Springs about two and a half years ago and moved out to Germany. And I'm getting ready to come back to the Springs sometime this winter. So I'm really interested in house hacking and specifically a small multifamily property. So I'm, I'm new to investing too. And what's your existing portfolio look like? Because you, you were an axe in the landlord, now investor. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that I bought a house when I was in the Springs the first time, uh, fully intending to move back to it once I returned from Germany, but realized that, you know, this is real estate investing thing is pretty, pretty sweet deal. So started learning more about it and really wanted to, to jump in, but it, it was hard overseas. So the, the next best thing for me, I figured was uh, turnkey. So since I've been in Germany, I bought two turnkey properties in uh, Kansas city. All right. So got your first house in the Springs, turned to a rental, two turnkey rentals mm-hmm. in Kansas City, moving back here next few months to the Springs uh, and plan on house hacking a multifamily, right? Yep, you got it. All right. So as the show's titled, it's Ask the Investor. And I know you got lots of lots of questions, Greg, that you share with us previously. So So jump in and fire away. Okay. Yeah. So the first one, I've uh, been paying attention to the market in the Springs a little bit. And it seems like when small multis come on the market, they're, they're gone immediately. So I, I would prefer to try to find one off the MLS. Uh, but if I can't, I'm considering trying to find one off market. So my question with that is if I do find an off market property, uh, is that something that an agent would be, be able to help help with? And like, how would that work with an agent? Like, what would they do? Uh, is that something they're even interested in? And then also how would the fees work for that? Yeah, I can take this one. So I agree. Um, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing that you're seeing in terms of, you know, if anything is a good fourplex, it's gone mm-hmm. within a few days. And the only reason why it's on for a few days is because they're collecting as many offers as they can. Um, so it is highly, highly competitive. I think a lot of that reason has to do with um, just kind of where rates are. People are figuring, hey, I can get a really good interest rate on four units that, you know, is, a, is an amazing way to, to leverage and, and utilize that. So I think that is contributing to um, 
people's intense interest in small multifamilies right now in the Springs, especially. Um, so in terms of finding an off-market deal, so um, Leah, who is you know another agent down here in the Springs, she currently has an off-market fourplex under contract um, that we were able to source ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. I'm working with another group of buyers to hopefully get an off-market fourplex under contract also. So it's not unheard of. Like we're definitely, you know, we have our, our ears to the ground trying to, um, you know, get information regarding these availabilities and, and opportunities. So in terms of that, there's really nothing different um, the way that those processes are working. We're still bringing those those properties to our buyers, the ones that, you know, meets their profiles um, and just saying, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Do you want to move forward? That sort of thing. Um, and, you know, just in terms of commission, typically we would just write in the contract that, um, seller to pay buyer's commission because it's not in the MLS. Um, and the MLS is kind of where you set your, uh, your, your co-op, uh, fee on that. So, um, that would really be the only difference on the commission side of things in terms of procedures and, and bringing the deal to close. There's no difference. It's just a matter of sourcing. Um, and then if you were to find a deal that's off market and, but you still wanted to work with an agent, um, to bring it to close, basically it would just be the same process. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm a little biased, but I think that if you are not used to buying things off market and you're not really used to the sales process and the closing process, I mean, I think that it's very helpful to to bring an agent on board and and help walk you through that process. Um, you know, just coordinating with title, coordinating with the seller mm-hmm. to get inspection, all that good stuff. Um, you know, utilizing our our resource network. So that's my opinion on that. I don't know, Chris. Do you have a Do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there, Jenny. Um, I just know from like you know the you know a lot of the you know transactions we've done, especially for house hacking. You know, you know, I would not make it like the main focus to find an off-market property for a house hack, uh, just because the two main things running there is just you know, if you're going to truly source the deal yourself, Greg, it's just you know, it's it's you're basically starting a marketing business, go out there and source a deal if you want to mm-hmm. like really scale up. Now, if you have opportunities to you know, hey, network, I'd always throw it out to people, um, or if you want to you know, write some you know, very personalized letters, they all have like I want to bank on using those methods to go out there and find an off-market property. But I think it's always worth throwing it out there as long as you can keep in relation with, you know, how much time you're putting out there and how much money. Because a lot of these, you know, uh, people who are sourcing these deals, they're, you know, they're on the phone 40 hours a week or they are spending $10,000 a month on marketing uh, direct direct mail costs or have a team of people. So, you know, you're, a lot of times against very competitive people who are funding those people uh, and they already have their systems in place. The other thing too is you mentioned, you know, looking at like a, a FHA multifamily, or I'm sorry, a multifamily property to house act. I'm assuming you'll use an FHA loan. Have you kind of thought about that yet? Yeah, so I, I'm planning on using a VA. Oh, that's right. Yeah, duh. And we can get into that later as long as that that's competitive. Absolutely. So the VA loan, the like most amazing loan product in the world. Um, 
the problem with that is if, you know, unless there's some control with or relation with that seller, um, if it's like a wholesaler or someone else who's selling the property, a lot of times they don't want to deal with like an owner-occupant financing because VA loans are usually one of the longer loans to close because mm -hmm. they have to go through the VA appraisal system and there's just, lenders can't speed that up. Like if it's an FHA, we can rush the appraisal, we can get things done quicker. But even with owner-occupant loans, there's other just contingencies and things going on about it that can make it less attractive for sellers to say, well, I'm gonna deal with with you and your loan product where I can take a cash off here for a quick close or, or less stipulations. Um, so I think the financing side, especially for multifamilies, makes it makes it a lot more difficult to find like an off-market property, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the traditional sense, like, hey, I'm gonna drive for dollars, I'm gonna cold call, I'm gonna go out there and do the deals or, you know, find the deals. But if they come in through like, you know, uh, you know, our network, your network, that gives you a much higher chance. But truly, truly like driving for dollars gives you a very low probability. And I don't think the money and time is effort is worth that, especially when you're gonna be putting basically 0% down like you know you're you're winning on the financing yeah and that that makes sense so i'd eventually like to to get to off market but i don't i don't know as a, a first one it seems challenging especially using it to try to find a primary residence yeah seems really challenging so i mean i, I get i go go for it um it's just been a very low probability of success with our clients. You know, we, we've had a few people here just through networking or they talked to the neighbor across the street or writing a few letters. They found the, you know, they found the deal. Um, but again, I would not bank on that to like, say, I'm a, I want to, you know, buy a place exclusively through that. And a lot of times, like the deals aren't that much different than MLS deals other than, you know, mm -hmm. you're not butting up against six other people bidding. So it's less competitive, which is nice, but it's not going to be like, a screaming deal that's going to have like a, you know, three X factor in your wealth creation. Yeah, sure. So that, that leads to, to more questions. So you said six other buyers, like who else is buying small multis in the Springs? Everyone. <laughs> it seems like, <laughs> so I've seen a lot of, um, people that want to just expand their portfolio. And mm -hmm. like, like I mentioned earlier, just take advantage of the cheap debt that's going on. Um, there's a lot of 1031s that I've been seeing floating around, just, you know, even reading yeah. in the MLS, like all the agent notes and stuff, pretty much everything touch on, touches on a 1031, you know, uh, one way or another on that. So, um, you know, I think just, it's a very attractive area. It's a very attractive product. And I, I believe that there are a lot of people that are, um, you know, trying to, to purchase a multifamily. Um, and I think one of the more difficult hurdles we will have to overcome is one that will be able to satisfy your residency requirement if you're mm -hmm. using a VA loan. Um, because, you know, kind of on the, the other end of the spectrum, rentals are very much in demand as well. So I would not be surprised if, you know, these owners have a, a line of, of potential tenants that want to rent if there's, you know, going to be a turnover or, or tenants that don't want to turn over, um, you know, because they, they like the property and everything. So just kind of keeping that in mind that there's a whole, you know, gamut of, of investors that, that want to purchase for various reasons. And other house hackers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's a lot of uh, the 1031 people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, because I, I would like to use the VA. Uh, I don't have to. I think you could probably like use other options. 
but you partly answered it is VA comes with a whole bunch of other stipulations. Like you have to intend to move in within 60 days. Um, the, uh, what else the appraisal so it really just working through the government. So it goes slower. Mm-hmm. How, how much would that hurt me? Do you think with sellers trying to use a VA versus like say a conventional mortgage? I think it all depends on what the other competition is. Um, and how that goes into their timeline. If they are 1031ing, that could impact things. Like they'd want the deal to fall apart on on the front end, um, not you know, 45 days into it, that sort of thing, because then they could, mm-hmm. you know, keep on track for for their own timeline. So I think it all depends on who's on the other end of that offer. That would be my answer. It's not gonna be a major hurdle. It's just it's a different aspect of the buying process. I mean, for all the, you know, the the people who've helped out with VA loans and FHA loans buying small multis, we've always gotten a deal done. So it's not like, oh, you're not gonna find anything. Um, you know, we will we will get the deal done or you know, you'll be able to find find a, a property that works well for you. And sometimes too, I mean, we've had situations where we've had clients using a VA loan that pulls on the the heartstrings of the seller. Who might be a retired, you know, military personnel, or just appreciates people in the military? We've had sellers literally tell us, "Hey, there are like six offers. You guys weren't the highest or best, but I want to help out. I'd rather help out like, you know, a service member versus an investor add another property's portfolio." We've actually gotten a couple properties that way, and so they can actually work the other side too. It's like, "Hey, you're just, you know, you're you're a young guy serving the country, looking to get into real estate investing." Some people are like, you know what? Yeah, I want to help out that person versus, you know, this investor from California, this investor from from Denver who's just ten thirty one and into there. So it actually can work in in your uh, in a pro for you as well. And I would you know yeah. put that out there too, you know, mentally. Like I think writing love letters, I don't think they're really. I don't know if they. We don't do them anymore. I don't know if you do them, Jenny, but they're pretty. No, pretty frowned upon. They're now. very frowned upon. Yeah, it's like um, fair housing violation yeah. in some in some. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Can see that. But yeah. But they'll know if you're a VA loan, they they know the situation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's I, I was gonna ask that same exact like what do you think about writing a, a personal letter, but you just answered it. Yeah. No. You you I, can I, I wouldn't. Yeah. But most agents they don't even if you send it to them, they're like, hey, we're not gonna open the email, we're not presenting to our seller. Um, just for all the fair housing laws, because if that comes to play mm-hmm. and then you know, it can be a completely different series of events. But hey, if it looks like someone potentially discriminated, there's a lot of issues there for the sellers, the agents, and no one wants to deal with it. Yeah, it'd be a whole can of worms that probably yeah. doesn't even need to be opened. Yep. Okay, so my next question is about uh, rents versus the, the price of properties. Because I, I listened to your other podcast that came out a, a couple months ago. And that it sounded like that was more specifically for apartments. So it's really, really two parts. So prices have gone up a, a ton. How have you seen the prices for rents for both single family homes and, and small multifamilies? Uh, what have you seen those do? And then how are small multifamilies, the rental costs, how, like, how do you figure that out? Is like right in between a single family home versus an apartment. Yeah, so I I like to analyze small multifamilies kind of more in line with apartments um, and apartments that don't 
have, you know, gyms and pools and, and all that good stuff, mm-hmm. because I imagine that you will not be installing those in your multifamily. So <laughs> um, I, when I'm analyzing rents, that's, that's ten, tends to be what I look at. Um, to answer the very first question, um, rents have been going up really significantly, both small multis, single families, you know, large apartments. Um, there's constantly, I'm seeing new, new news articles kind of catching up to the fact that, um, rents have jumped pretty astronomically, um, over the past year. And, um, you know, with personally speaking with my turnovers that I've had, I've been able to command much higher rents than what I was previously getting. Um, so it, it all kind of depends on, the, I would also say the legacy of the multifamily that you're buying into. So for instance, um, you know, most landlords, I would say, don't raise rents on, on good tenants. It's just, you know, kind of part of the business. So if you buy a property that has four or, you know, three tenants that have been there for 10 years and they're amazing tenants, they keep the, the property up well, you're probably not going to see those rents in line with market rate. And then mm-hmm. you're going to kind of be faced with that situation. Hey, am I buying it at a performa price? Am I buying it at actuals? Um, you know, personally, I don't like raising rents on, on good tenants like that. So that would be a balancing act. Um, however, we just uh, worked with a buyer who bought a, a really nice multifamily, a fourplex, um, and two of the units were vacant. So it was basically like, you know, two of the units he has at those legacy pricing, they're much lower than, than uh, market value. He's going to keep it that way, but the empty units, he's going to raise them to market value. So um, I think that's just kind of, you know, you have three slash four, you know, when you move out um, units that you kind of have a balancing act um, to figure out based on that. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but just, um, you know, it's very variables kind of, the, the punchline mm-hmm. to that. So I've got, uh, I don't know if you saw this from the Denver Post the other day, Jenny, I think it came out just on Monday over the weekend, but it, yeah. they're running, the title is Rising Front Range Rents are, ri- are Widespread and Will Keep Climbing. And they quote an economist from apartment uh, apartment list in the rent report. But uh, here's what says, Greg, Colorado Springs rents are up 22%. 22% since the start of the pandemic. Jeez. This is one yeah. of the biggest increases okay. we've seen anywhere nationally. Um, yeah. And there's different things in the front range, but according to this and this stuff I've seen, I think Springs has been kind of like the the leading edge of seeing rents bump up. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, rents are definitely climbing, you know, astronomically this last, you know, year to date or last year they have. And that kind of loops back to why there's so many buyers for multifamilies as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's a loss of guard, you know, there, there's chatter that 1031s might, you know, be changed, which, hey, that anytime it happens, that always gets investors moving. Um, debt is really cheap, especially for these like two to four unit multifamilies. Buy a, buy a property, put it on 30 or fixed around 3.5% or the high threes, you're a little bit above inflation or actually below inflation last couple months. Um, and so it's you know, a big hedge. So people see... Hey, there's no housing. Uh, there's not enough housing inventory from building and rental standpoint. Debt is cheap. Rents are climbing. They're all seeing the same headlines we see for inflation, uh, whether it's you know long term or temporary. And so that's where a lot of people, hey, let me just leverage up, 
uh, buy real estate because real estate's you know historically one of the best hedges against inflation. So a lot of people are just simply parking money to ride that wave of growth or the you know the the wave inflation growth we're gonna call it. And Springs is just you know it's kind of like in a perfect storm where you have all this economic stuff going on, but it's also just a very attractive market from just you know what the Springs is doing locally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like it's it's right in line with uh, what appreciation's been over the past year pretty close to it yeah it's been about i think 20 20 ish percent so yeah it's uh it, it i've been shocked at the at the rental rates that you know our clients have been getting i've been getting so it's uh um i wouldn't make it a deterrent even though mm-hmm. i would say probably end of last year i was saying that it is an issue that rents are not keeping up with um appreciation but uh, I'm, I'm not really seeing that right now. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was just getting sna- snapshots like from the MLS, you know, it reflects the, the higher prices, but I just don't think the, the higher rent yet, but it, I mean, it sounds like it, it's not an issue. Yeah. That's a, that's a really great point. Um, people are definitely selling and valuing off of performer rents, um, mm. which I mean, there's a lot of different schools of thought on that. Um, You know, I would say the summary is you're not going to win a property if you if you price it based off of current rents um, in today's market with how competitive competitive it is because people are going to pay based off of performa. Yeah. So I mean that that's going right into my next question. So what I'm curious to get your thoughts on like. Purchasing a property that is either neutral with cash flow or even negative. Uh, and then, so my line of thinking is something I'm, I'm thinking about is the, like the expected appreciation and loan pay down and then expected rising of rents, you know, two, three, four, five years in the future, uh, offset the risk of potentially a negative cash flow. So a lot of it just depends on, you know, the investor's personal goals and also the financing. Like it's, you know, it's hard to look at like a multi-unit with a 0% down loan say, oh, damn, it's not a great cash flowing property. You know, you're, 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 so it's kind of like a double-edged sword there. It's a 0% down property, which is amazing for you because it's, you know, you'll be $10,000 or less out of pocket, you know, for, you know, three quarter million dollar asset. Yeah, but at the same time, if that's gonna, it is gonna like you know give you very little, you know, no equity in the property, which just slim down the cash flow. So, you know, there are people that you know will absolutely not do it, and there are people that will do it. I think it just kind of comes down to what your your risk tolerance is and your beliefs. You know, personally, I'm fine with that, especially in situations like you, because hey, you're you're you know you're putting so little down. And even if you, you know, otherwise, hey, you want to put down 25 hours in the property, we're talking $150,000, $200,000. Big difference. So I'd rather keep more cash on hand, have a neutral cash flow property, but be like, you know what? I see, I see the, I see the economic indicators. You know, we don't have enough supply. We, you know, rents are going up. This is happening. This is here. This is here. Like, yeah, it should probably go up. Worst case, um, it may flat for a little bit. But that's where it kind of comes down to what your risk tolerance is, how you view it, and how you also have your cash reserves, because you definitely want to keep healthy cash reserves so you can, um, you know, keep it going. Or, you know, another way I look at, hey, use a zero percent down payment. You have your basically your tenants subsidizing your down payment because rather than to put down twenty or twenty five percent, you have your tenants do it, and 
you can delay all that cash out of your pocket by having tenants come in there. And that gives you a great, you know, there's mm-hmm. an opportunity to cost your capital in there. Um, and then, you know, there are people that just say, nope, no way will I do that. Um, and then that works for them. And, you know, I've talked to people and you know what, they told me that three years ago and they have still bought no properties. So there has to be balance of like, Hey, I want this. Like, Hey, there's deals I want here when I buy stuff, but I'm also realistic to like, Hey, here's what the Denver market, here's what the Colorado Springs market is doing. I can't really change it. Um, so kind of like, you know, being realistic with what's going on in the market is, is my two cents. Yeah, that makes sense. It'd be easier to, uh, put down more in reserves if you're not even paying much of a down payment at all. So yeah. instead of the 25% down payment just shrink that a little bit, but then that would just become your reserves. And one more thing you could look at too, because, you know, with, with the VA, um, you know, I mean, you'll probably be at what high twos or low threes currently for, uh, I would imagine the multifamily using a VA. So, you know, you're around inflation and then you're still going to be below like the, the, the cap rate. So, you know, a uh, one metric to look at is the spread between cap rates and interest rates. So, hey, you're buying a, a 4.5 or 5% cap rate, but you're borrowing at 3%. You have a, you know, one and a half to 2% spread on there, which is a great indicator. Now, when interest rates go above cap rates, it's a different story, but if interest rates are below cap rates, from a pure financial uh, perspective, it's a, it's a really good indicator to look at. Hmm, okay. Yeah, never, so I, I know like, I've heard cap rates don't don't really understand them. Yeah. But you're saying if like the the normal mortgage rate is below a cap rate, that's a good good indicator to buy. What, what does it indicate? It's it's a good indicator that um, you're making you sh- you're making a spread, a profit on the money you're borrowing and what the property is returning on you, um, without taking like all the other indicators of how you make money. Uh, in real estate, but really from like, you know, just a, a pure borrowing cost and how the property is performing. It's just a good indicator in that sense of, hey, your borrowing costs are cheaper than what the property is producing. Great. Okay. And I can send you some more detailed information on that as well. Cause it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a tricky, um, tricky concept. Okay. Yeah. And, and like to, to read up on it. Yeah. So then kind of in line with that, like trying to figure out cash flow. Um, what, what are you using to analyze properties, specifically small multis, um, and specifically some of the things that aren't like, I guess is, is readily available or easy to pick up on. It's like things like utilities, um, insurance, and then even, uh, with like prices being higher now, uh, repairs and maintenance and vacancy. Yeah, great question. So it definitely depends on what part of town you're in um, because taxes will be different. Insurance will be different depending on what part of town. And then, of course, utilities that can vary widely depending on mm-hmm. how the unit is metered. So, it you know, most units are... And this is a very blanketed statement. Of course, mm. each each property needs to be checked out um, and confirmed um, when we evaluate it. But you know, just generally speaking, most multifamilies are individually metered for electric and gas, and they are typically not individually metered for uh, water and sewer. So, for a fourplex, I use about twenty six hundred dollars a year for water and sewer um, because that's just been what my clients have 
uh, uncovered in due diligence uh, over you know the past few months for fourplexes that they're buying, and that seems to be the going rate. Um, so you know, I, I use that as a ballpark. Property management, I think 10% is probably good. Um, a lot of multifamily PMs do about 8%, and then that 2% difference is you know lease up costs, you know miscellaneous management costs things like that. Um, for repairs and maintenance, I tend to do about 8%. Um, and then for vacancy, about 5%. Um, and, you know, that can vary widely depending on, you know, again, which area it's in, what uh, the condition of the, of the property is when you buy it, that sort of thing. But um, that, those are pretty good rules of thumb. And then um, landscaping and snow removal, I do about like 600. Uh, I, I, I try to look to see how many steps it looks like they have. Because <laughs> some some have like, you know, stairways going up and some are just, you know, very like, you know, ground unit, that sort of thing. Um, and then other than that, I just kind of take a look at it on a case-by-case basis. Some fourplexes belong to uh, an HOA, like a covenant enforcement. So yeah. Sometimes that covers trash. Um, so, you know, it, it's important to kind of look into that. It's like, oh, well, it's in an HOA. That's unfortunate that I have this additional cost. But if it covers trash and it's $500 a year, well, that pretty much negates uh, your trash expense. So it's just kind of going into each one like that. But, um, yeah, trash would be another one that we've we've been seeing grown up on, on trash prices. But, you know, 60 80 a month for a large dumpster is, is a good guess. Cool. And then are, uh, are sellers generally forthcoming with providing that information or is that on like the, the buyer to, I, I'm sure like through due diligence to do it, but, um, like making predictions in lieu of not having any information on it. <laughs> so they're usually forthcoming and telling you what, um, utilities are metered. Um, but in terms of details on, you know, whatever average is, typically, no, that would be on us to make a best guess for the offer um, price point. And then when we're in due diligence assessment, we would do a deep dive on, on that. Um, and they, you know, they have to abide by that. We rewrite that into the contract so that they provide us with those um, details. Okay. Do you have a rule of thumb or any, any better way to estimate insurance costs? Oh, yeah. So, yes, right now. Yeah, it depends. So, for fourplexes, uh, I've seen some like 2,500 plus. Um, so, if you want to be on the conservative side, you know, high, t- high 2000s for the year. Okay. I think it's pretty close. Most of them just throw in like 200 a month and probably, probably fairly close, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that point, like what's a couple hundred bucks if we're, mm-hmm. if we're off at that point. So. Yeah. And then insurance, it's not going to vary that much from property to property. It'll be a couple hundred dollars, maybe a few hundred dollars, depending how, you know, who, what insurance company you're talking with or how you structure some of the, you know, deductibles and, and those features. I mean, the biggest thing that I've seen, um, you know, that, that can be the gotchas and the insurances if it's in a flood zone, which, you know, I don't know in Colorado mm-hmm. Springs, but, you know, very few properties in Denver in flood zones, but, you know, they're, they back up to a gulch or, you know, something like that to where we've had a few times and then you have to get additional flood insurance. 
but that's definitely very much like the the minority of cases. I mean, I mean one percent, if not less, of properties that we've seen. So it happens very really. So she's in a rough ballpark. Um, is very is my recommendation. Again, who cares about two hundred bucks into the year? And then you know we always like to tell our clients is you know uh, property insurance is one of the due diligence parts of the contract. And if you're not happy with insurance, that is a reason you can cancel the contract. So when you go under contract, get the property insurance quote ASAP from your. Uh, your insurance person. And then that way you have a real quote and can make, you know, underwrite it and make adjustments as needed based on the underwriting, or if it's in a flood zone or some crazy stuff, you know, cancel a contract. Mm -hmm. So on a contingencies, what, what normally do you recommend for contingencies? Cause what I'm thinking is like with, with the market being so hot, you know, what is that balance between being protected versus not getting your offer accepted? So for contingencies uh, within the offer itself, you mean, or? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, like, so yeah, it all depends. Yeah, it all depends. Um, you know, a, a lot of times earlier this summer, we had to do appraisal gaps to, to win the offer. Um, mm. Not so much now. I think we're a little bit more caught up. So, um, you know, that's not as, as dependent. Um, a lot of things... Uh, or a lot of offers that I've written, the buyer wants to do uh, an inspection limitation, meaning that, hey, we're not going to object to, you know, this outlet is broken or something like that. We're we're going to draw a line in the sand and say, we're only going to object to things that are $1,000 or more, um, meaning like, you know, if the boiler is, is about to, to break, um, that sort of thing, or if the roof is shot. Um, but, you know, they're not going to say, oh, there's a little tiny stain on the carpet over here, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. So it just kind of shows that you're more serious. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, some people waive all that stuff. I don't recommend it. Um, you know, you need to, you need, this is a very large investment that you're making. You need to have as much information on the property as, as you possibly can. If they pick someone else who chooses to waive it, then, you know, good for them. But, you know, I, d I don't recommend that to my buyers. Okay. Uh, so next question kind of in along with expenses is what do you think is going to happen with property taxes in the next couple of years? Cause I don't, I'm not sure how they are valued or where they come from, but I'm assuming it's got to be tied to the value of the property. Right. Yeah. Um, I've definitely seen property taxes on this most recent go around of assessments. So it gets reassessed every two years. Mm -hmm. um, they've definitely jumped up a lot and you know, it's tied to what they're selling for and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, I imagine that that will be the trend, um, over the next couple of years to, you know, kind of catch up to rising prices. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, prices going up, taxes go up, same rate about, uh, so for putting in an offer, um, how fast should an offer go in once a property hits the MLS? And then is it like so fast that you should think about doing it without actually seeing the property? Yeah. So most multifamilies, if they're fully occupied, they do not allow for showings prior to an accepted contract. So hmm. I would say as fast as you can underwrite your initial due diligence, um, you know, 
like you don't want to jump on it without you know thinking it through but um just really kind of saying like yep this is the area i was looking in this is kind of general ballpark yeah let's let's jump on it because Mm -hmm. there's going to be like 10 other people that are doing the same thing um we can write in our contract um a separate uh uh viewing um period but it's still you know contractually it's still within your inspection period so as long as you have an inspection period within your contract you can Mm -hmm go in eyes on the property and then, you know, kind of go from there, um, do your visual inspection. So yeah, uh, I would say you do not get a chance to see the home and best that they can offer is, uh, you know, driving around the, the neighborhood and looking at it from your car, Yeah, which is wild, but that's just kind of how it is. Yeah. And that's, so I don't, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. So it's for a house hack and I might, I'm married. So for me, like, I care much less about, you know, what the house looks like, how the, the landscaping is, you know, like if it's homey, cause it's, it's going to be temporary. But the person I have to convince the most is my wife. Whereas if we can't even look at it, like as long as the area is good, it'll, it'll probably be good. It might, might help us out. So I think those are the biggest questions I had. Yeah. Those are all really fantastic questions. I'm, super glad that you asked all of them because I think that those are a lot of very similar questions that people who are interested in multifamily would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely helps. I feel, feel a lot better now. I actually uh, do an analysis. I feel like I'll get actually closer to, to what they'll be and not just shoot in the dark so much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we're here for. So, you know, don't be shy if, sending myself or Leah an email. Hey, you know, what do you think rents would go for in this mm-hmm. area? Or, you know, what, do you know anything about utilities on this building? That sort of thing. We're more than happy to answer it for you. So I, I do have another one. Um, what, a, what's the supply like of multifamilies in the winter? So like January, February. So the first time I looked into it was this past year, but this year was a, a unique year. What, a, what generally is it like? So with investment properties, I would say it's not as cyclical as the mm-hmm. standard real estate market cycle is for uh, seasonality, um, just because, you know, investors aren't tied to, you know, if you're if if you if you're not living there, you don't really care when school starts and stops, that sort of thing, because mm-hmm. it doesn't impact you. So I, I would say that um, generally speaking, it shouldn't be impacted by seasonality, but it's been such a weird year. I have no idea yeah. what to expect. <laughs> One um, looping back around, um, I had a thought pop of mind, and geez, now it just left my brain. Um, well, going back to just kind of like you know the balance of doing due diligence, putting offers in. Um, you know, I always think it's worthwhile if you can walk the property. It's always ideal too, because um, you know sellers can a lot, a lot of times tell. But the other thing too is don't there there's a balance about how much due diligence work to do up front versus how much to do after you get on a contract with how fast the market moves and how you know how friendly the, the contract how buyer friendly the contract is out here in Colorado. Um, we're very big proponents of like kind of if it passes a sniff test, like hey, it looks good, the numbers look good put the offer and get in a contract, then really do like a deep, deep due diligence dive 
then, because that point you get lending numbers, you'll get title reports, you'll get seller's property disclosures, you'll get, we can get better rent comps, we can get the inspection reports, get much better scope, and then go re-underwrite the properties. And hey, if it still makes sense and works for it, and there's no major you know, inspection items or financing issues or insurance issues, great, move forward. If there is, you know, you terminate, you'll be out a few bucks from just, you know, your due diligence cost, but we're talking, you know, $500, $800, so pretty insignificant. So it's balancing out like, hey, look at properties, but don't, I would not put the stress on you um, on trying to do like a full, you know, underwriting just because that's how fast the market moves is, you know, get good at like, hey, here's the rules of thumbs. Hey, looks, looks interesting to me. Let's go with it. And then do a deep, a deeper dive once it's under contract. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that makes sense. So, um, how different are the inspections for a, a small multifamily versus a, a single family home? They're not too much different. Um, it depends on how the, I would say the the biggest difference is how the heating situation is set up. If it's, you know, one boiler or four furnaces, um, you know, that would take them a little bit longer to kind of really analyze what the system that's going on down there. But otherwise, I mean, it's just a, you know, a really, really large house uh, to mm-hmm. simplify it. You know, it's just one big roof, one big crawl space, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it just, it, it just takes longer just due to the size. But um, in terms of like intricacies, I haven't really noticed too much. All right. That's good. Makes yeah. it a little easier. And then how, how long uh, normally is uh, the due diligence like between offer and closing? Yeah, so we would negotiate that in the contract, but generally speaking, due diligence is the first week, week and a half inspection would be on the later end. And and by due diligence, I mean due diligence documents. Um, so rent rolls, um, utility verification, you know, leases, lease review period, that sort of thing, uh, the paperwork uh, aspect to it. And then you would be able to tack on um, inspection at the end of that period. Um, and then, you know, as those are the two big initial, um, events that you'll have, and then there'll be small ones in between, um, like Chris said, uh, insurance, you know, estoppel statement sometimes, um, that sort of thing. And then towards the end, that's going to be more on the financing piece. That's where appraisal is going to come in. That's where you're going to get your final loan numbers. So um, it's constant work the whole time that we're under contract, uh, but it's kind of like little mini finish lines um, for each each one. And you're you're most likely going to fall out for either due diligence documents or, or inspection. Would mm-hmm. be my you know kind of blanket statement on that. Yep. You're just saying like a week for inspection. That seems super fast. No, that would be on the back end. So, so I would say a week, week and a half for due diligence documents. And then usually mm-hmm. going into that second week, that's when you have inspection. Um, our team, we like to get inspection scheduled as soon as possible so that you have more time between, um, you know, when you've had your inspection and then ins- inspection objection or termination um, to get other trades in there. So for instance, say uh, your inspector gets, you know, out there three days once you've gone under contract and you have a a week until your inspection objection, well, you can get other trades in there, Mm -hmm. check out the roof. If they, you know, if they called that out or, uh, you know, heating, the heating elements, that sort of thing. Um, you can get a more educated, 
you know, a viewpoint on the whole picture and then you have a better uh, basis to, to make your decision off of. Okay. So great questions, Greg, we're coming up on the hour. So we'll need to wrap up here in a couple, any, any final questions that uh, you want to throw our way? No, you hit every single one I had and then even, even some new ones that came up. So thank you very much. Ah, you're welcome. This, this was, this was fantastic. Like you asked great questions. So we appreciate it. You're prepared. Um, and hopefully kind of gives you more guidance into the market. And of course you have more questions, you know, reach out to us and we'll be happy to answer them. Um, so Greg, you know, I did not ask you this before the show, but a lot of times, you know, the podcast is great for networking. Um, do you want to share any like ways people can contact your network or do you, are you rather just staying private? Yeah, no. And that actually brings up another, another question. Uh, investor associations or meetups, like, are there any in the Springs that, that you guys recommend? That's all you, Jenny. <laughs> so I moved down here when the pandemic hit. So I had been going up to meetups in Denver uh, for real estate, just, you know, because that's where I was living at the time. Um, so, you know, I have not been to any local meetups down here, admittedly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, um, I mean, in, in my experience, I haven't been to Colorado Springs, but just going to different, you know, RIA meetups, you know, here in Denver, other parts of the country. I find them to be very hit or miss. Um, and that can be the whole group itself or just some, you know, some meetings are very flat. So it's one of the things it's worth checking out there. But I, I think the more important thing, if you want to go there to the meetup, I would take the focus of, of you know, anyone you go to be proactive. And you know, this is the best way you'll meet, you know, to meet people locally here and, and get to know some people is, you know, hey, go, the, you know, before the meetup, reach out, volunteer to set up chairs or volunteer to help with the registration table or whatever mm-hmm. they need. Hey, a runner for the mic, like just whatever it is like. But like, I've always had very good luck with that. I was actually talking with some people about this last night as well. Just they've done it in there completely different business, but you know, same concept is, Hey, go to them and meet up. And it might be, might be a great meetup, might be a poor meetup, but that connection out there with the, the organizer or just kind of getting your name out there that often sets you up for success. And I think that's way more important, that type of networking, you know, volunteering networking, uh, way more important than you just going there and consuming information. Like you'll get way more out of it. If you're, um, going there, you know, networking in mind, and I, I found the best way to network is just go volunteer and set up some chairs, do the registration table, you know, get the coffee brewed, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like I've done that numerous times. I did that when I moved out here to Denver years ago. I've done other businesses, and it's been a very, very um, great model for me. Um, so yeah, meetups, you know, worthwhile. But man, volunteer and and really use that to network. Okay, yeah, it's a it's a good tip. Yeah. But uh, going back to, to your question, Chris, e- email is the easiest way to get a hold of me. Okay. Especially in Germany. Yeah. Um, so we'll just share that in the show notes. So people that, um, you know, want to connect with you, pick your brain, maybe they have an off-market fourplex, you want to say whatever it is, you know, reach <laughs> out. Like, you know, th- this is one of the great benefits of, of the podcast as well. Kind of going back to what we talked about in the RIAs, it's, it's just a great way to network. So we always like having people reach out that way, connect, um, and get a deal done. So, Greg, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your questions in public format. We appreciate it. Jenny, great job. And uh, we'll keep everyone up to date on your fourplex house hack hunt. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, all the, the help.
You bet. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you guys have questions, reach out to me, reach out to Jenny. If you guys want to be on a future Ask the Investor podcast, reach out to us as well. The format's awesome. Great way to do some Q&A. So uh, let's talk. Everyone have a great day.